and be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. evening worship service, I have been going through Galatians, uh, and I've been working diligently to try to get to Matthew 24 uh, settled, um, but uh, that has been taking some time, because Matthew 24 is a very challenging passage, and takes a lot of, uh, a lot of work. So, we are in Galatians uh, this morning, Galatians chapter 2. I am going to start reading in verse 11 to get uh, the context for you, but the actual sermon is based on verses 17 through 21. 17 through 21. But I'll start in verse 11. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, it contains no errors uh, in it, in the original language, languages in which is what was given, and we have the promise that it remains to us in faithful translations the word, the authoritative word of God. So reverently listen to God speak to you now. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if we, if, but if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Amen. Pray with me. 
Lord, we thank you that we have this sure word before us. We thank you that you have preserved it down through the ages and that it is uh, you who speaks herein. And we thank you, Lord, that you also, Lord Jesus, the great prophet of the church, uh, speak not just through the written word, but also through the preached word. Uh, You have promised to use uh, frail and sinful men such as myself uh, to be um, mouthpieces for you. And in such a way that when we rightly assess a text, uh, you are the one who speaks to us. Would you please do that afresh now, Lord? Would you please forbid that I should say anything erroneous or contrary to what the text means? And would you please use this means of saving and sanctifying grace to work uh, good things in our midst? We pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, um, all of you children, because I know all of you children and I know all of your parents, all of you have wonderfully loving parents. Uh, You children are very blessed to have the parents that you have because uh, you live in Christian homes and you have Christian parents who are Christ-like much of the time, every once in a while not, But much of the time, they are Christ-like in their behavior toward you. And one of the things that I'm sure you already know, children, is that if, when you do something bad, and you children do things that are bad, just like we adults do at times, if you do something that is disobedient to uh, your mother or your father, that you know they have told you and that God has told you, don't do that, you know that your mom and dad aren't going to point to the door and say, leave this house and never come back. Your parents are not going to do that, are they? They love you, and they will never abandon you even, if you, even if you do some really disobedient things. Now, they may spank you, which they need to do, if you do uh, disobedient things. But... Uh, that's even that's done in love. But my point is, even if you do really bad things, uh, lie, say, or steal something, or talk back to your mom and dad, uh, mom or dad, they're not going to um, put you out of the family and say, leave us and don't ever come back. They're never going to do that because your parents love you and they're Christian parents. There are non-Christian parents, by the way, that will disown their children. Um, But your parents would never do that regardless of what you might do. I say this, okay, because I want to ask you this. Since you already know that your parents will never abandon you because of who they are, does that give you the right to go out and disobey them because you know they're not going to abandon me? So I can go and I can do all these bad things. I can beat up on my little brother or my, my, my little sister or I can, uh, you know, you name off the bad things that children do. I can do all that because it's okay because my parents won't uh, kick me out of the family. Is that right? Is that, is that thought right? No. No, it's not right. 
Just because your parents won't abandon you is not an excuse for you to say, then I can do whatever I want. Even those evil things that part of us wants to do, I'm going to go ahead and do that because I'm not going to get kicked out of the family. No, we don't think like that. We mustn't think like that, right? It's evil to think that way. You children understand that. That also applies, children, to God. And you see, we are not only in our in our families here, but we are also in God's family. And God is our Father. And the truth is that if you're a Christian child, and that is if you're trusting in Jesus alone for your forgiveness of your sins by God, then you're in God's family. And you will never, ever be kicked out of that family by God. No matter what happens, no matter the sinful things that you may do in this life. But that is not an excuse uh, for you to sin against God in your life. Because you're like, well, I'm a Christian. God's going to forgive me for that. That's an evil way to think. A very, In fact, if you think that way and act that way, it actually proves you're not a Christian. I trust you children won't think or act that way, and you adults either. This passage deals with the issue that I just presented to you children uh, with respect to God. It talks about the fact that just because God has been enormously gracious to us in forgiving us of our sins, uh, just by trusting, because we've trusted in Jesus, that that is not an excuse for us to um, offend God by sinning against Him uh, with, um, with great eagerness. That's what this passage is about. Uh, I'll get to the two points specifically here in a moment. But let me first give you a little background on what has happened uh, prior to this point in time in Paul's letter, because not all of you have been with us in the evening service as we've worked our way through the first chapter and a half or so of uh, Galatians. Um, in the first... Um, well, I'll just stick with basically chapter 2. In chapter 2 here, uh, the first 16 verses of chapter 2, Paul has been uh, was informing, and I read you part of it, but Paul was informing his Galatian readers uh, of, a, of an encounter that Paul had. Actually, it starts in verse 11, not, not verse 1. Um, he speaks of this encounter that he had with Peter, uh, and Barnabas was also with him, but Peter is really the object of this encounter. He describes uh, a previous encounter that he had, and he's describing this to the Galatians, with Peter in Syrian Antioch. In other words, there are two Antiochs. One is in Pisidia and one was in Syria. And this is the Antioch that was in Syria, also known as Syrian Antioch. And he had this encounter some months prior to the writing of this letter with Peter. And and uh, before I tell you more, I want to just say something, a technical aspect of this passage uh, grammatical aspect, actually, and that is, I believe with uh, Calvin, John Calvin uh, asserted this, and others as well, but I believe that Cal- with Calvin that Paul's recounting of his encounter with Peter um, probably ends at verse 16. Okay? No, verse, uh, excuse me, with verse uh, 14. Verse 14. And then, verses 15 and following, are Paul's commentary on the incident. 
uh, uh, involving Peter and the, the, that incident's relevance to the situation in Galatia because the Galatians were dealing with these Judaizers who were trying to convince them that Paul got the gospel wrong and that they, they had some additions to the gospel that would correct uh, Paul's mistakes that he had made when he was, uh, when he was preaching among them. And so uh, 15 through uh, the end of the chapter is probably Paul's commentary on, uh, for the Galatians on what happened in Antioch with Peter. So what, what happened in, in Antioch? Well, Peter, uh, Paul rather, publicly rebuked Peter for refusing to eat with Gentile Christians there in Antioch. Uh, he, he would not, we eat with them because there were these individuals called the party of the circumcision. Uh, they may be, in fact, uh, Judaizers who were in the Antioch area, uh, who were on the periphery of the church in, uh, in Syrian Antioch. Um, or it, may, it might have been the Judaizers, uh, who were in, uh, in Jerusalem. Not sure. But the point is, because there was this party of the circumcision pressuring Peter into not, uh, eating with the Gentiles, uh, Peter didn't eat with the Gentiles. He stopped eating with the Gentiles uh, in Antioch. And this was hypocritical, Paul says, because Peter, of all people, knew better than anybody else because he was the one that saw the vision of that sheet coming down out of the sky just before he went to visit Cornelius that God gave that vision and said, eat, meaning those unclean things are no longer unclean. And by the way, his point is, the people that you're about to visit, the Gentile you're about to visit, he is no longer unclean. He belongs in the church, and you're going to preach the gospel to him, and he's going to be converted. And that's exactly what happened. And so, but, and Peter knew that, you see. He was the first apostle to grasp that in, a, in the clearest of ways because of the vision he saw. And now he is backing away from Gentile Christians because of this party of the circumcision. And so, uh, what Peter was doing says Paul. Well, let me read what Paul says again uh, in verses 14 through 16. He rebukes Peter and he says, but when I saw uh, that they, Peter in particular, were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, so the gospel's at stake, I said to Cephas, who was Peter, in the presence of all, so publicly he said this, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? You haven't been following the Jewish law yourself, is his point, the ceremonial laws. You haven't been doing that. But all of a sudden, you're, you're acting like the Gentiles need to do that. What's, what gives? And so Peter, by his actions, by his withdrawal from the Gentile Christians in Antioch, he was, in effect, rebuilding, by his example, the intertestamental rabbi's doctrinal edifice, which was justification by law-keeping. It was a perversion of Old Testament Judaism. It wasn't Old Testament Judaism. It was a perverse rabbinical uh, um, um, hodgepodge that, uh, that fundamentally was works religion. And uh, so that is why P, P, uh, the, Paul is so agitated. He's like, you're destroying the gospel here by your example, your, your horrific example. And, he, and, and Paul, in this letter to the Galatians, um, recalls and, and, and recounts this incident that happened in Antioch between him and uh, Peter because that incident... Uh, uh, 
because what happened in Antioch was exactly uh, what was what what the Judaizers were trying to get the Galatians to believe, namely that the Gentiles can't just believe in Jesus. No, no, no. The Gentiles need to they need to conform to Jewish law. They need to get circumcised and do all the other things that go with that we say go with being a, a good follower of Jehovah. Yeah, it's important to believe in Jesus. They would have thrown that in there. Uh, but that's, uh, they uh, utterly uh, uh, didn't mean that. It was, it was salvation by law-keeping. And so he recounts this incident, and then he comments on it in this letter to the Galatians. So they'll see, uh, this is a warning to them, in other words. Don't do what Peter was tempted to do and what he was tempting others to do by his actions. The doctrine of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, is set forth in Scripture. And uh, it is neatly summarized by the Shorter Catechism, and I'm going to uh, uh, recite it for you here. It says, and this is question 33, by the way, uh, justification is an act, it's an act, not a process or a work, it's an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons us of all of our sins, so forgiveness, and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, credited to us, or reckoned to be ours, and received by faith alone. That's biblical justification. The framers of the the Westminster Standards got it just right weighing all the biblical evidence uh, with respect to that doctrine. And that's what biblical justification is. And it was threatened by Peter's actions. And it was threatened by the Judaizers in uh, Galatia, uh, threatening to uh, cause the Galatian Christians to uh, abandon the gospel that Paul preached for this novel, um, works-centered, man-centered gospel. There are two major truths, finally, That was all by way of introduction. There are two major truths that are taught in this passage, and they are as follows. The fact that Christians are justified by faith alone in Christ alone can in no way serve as an incentive for you to break God's law. The fact that Christians are justified by faith alone can in no way serve as an incentive for you or me, any of us, to break God's law. And then secondly, this passage teaches that the fact that Christians are justified by faith alone in Christ alone can and will serve as an incentive for you to obey God's law. So first, the fact that Christians are justified by faith alone in Christ alone can in no way legitimately serve as an incentive for you to break God's law. Now, Paul's opponents in Galatia he's writing against in this letter, the Judaizers, they claimed just the opposite of what I just said. What they claimed was that Paul's doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone actually encouraged and promoted lawless, sinful living. That's what they were, in effect, teaching. Well, Paul meant well, but his doctrine is off. We, 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 we have a connection to the apostles back in Jerusalem, and we, we are better informed than Paul is. Let us clarify for you what Paul should have said. 
you need to add works to faith, is what their message was. Their reasoning was something like this. If God, and uh, so, so again, they believe Paul's doctrine promotes lawlessness, lawless, sinful living. So they, their reasoning went something like this. If God has already pardoned a man and declared him to be righteous in his sight, in other words, has justified him, if God has already done that on, the, on account of his faith in Christ alone, then what incentive does that man have to become a better person and live for God? And their answer was, None. He doesn't have any incentive to to do the right thing. Because he's already been forgiven of everything. (coughs) Sins past, present, and future. So what incentive does he have? He doesn't have any incentive. This is what the Judaizers were, in effect, arguing. Paul anticipates that objection with verse 17. Let's look at it. He says, But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found sinners... Is Christ then a minister of sin? And he says emphatically, may it never be. When the apostle uses the word sinners here in verse 17, um, uh, if, uh, but if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found to be, uh, have been found sinners. When he uses that word there, he is picking up on his own use of that word back in verse 15, which I, uh, which I read uh, earlier on. Uh, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. He's picking up there, uh, re- reusing that term, um, uh, when he was uh, recalling what, uh, what he had said to Peter back when he was rebuking him for his hypocrisy. So the word sinners here is a derogatory term that Jews used to describe Gentiles. It was derogatory. They're all sinners. They're all, you know, uh, yeah, they're all sinners. And they were sinners, not so much because uh, they were all so immoral, although many of the Gentiles were in the day, but they were sinners because they, the Jews called them that because they weren't keeping the Mosaic Law, including all the ceremonial laws. That's why they were sinners in, in the eyes of the Jews, because they were not keeping the Mosaic Law. So here then is what Paul is saying in verse 17. And, and it's a little bit hard to uh, catch it unless, unless you uh, study it carefully in the context and stuff. But this is essentially what he's saying. Contrary to the way it may seem, the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone does not encourage lawlessness, doesn't make Christ a minister of sin, And it doesn't do that, even though what the doctrine of justification does is it causes Jewish Christians like me, Paul speaking, and like Peter, it causes us Jews to abandon the law or obedience to the law as the means of our being made right before God. We Jews abandon the law as our hope of right standing before God, and that's And justification by faith alone in Christ alone does that. It causes us to let go of works, uh, law-keeping, as our hope of being right before God. And yes, what that does, Paul is saying, implying here, is it puts us um, in the same position as the lawless Gentile sinners. Not under the law. 
not looking to the law. It puts us in the same place as them, is what he's, what he's uh, imply, implied by his words there in uh, verse 17. And that's okay. <clears throat> so how did Paul know that this doctrine, uh, that he was espousing, justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, how did he know that that doctrine doesn't act as an incentive for people to break the law, like the Judaizers said that it was? It was an incentive, they said, to break the law, to defy God. How did Paul know that it wasn't? Because of what verse 18 says. Because it is the very opposite doctrine the doctrine of justification by human obedience to the law, it's that very opposite doctrine of the true doctrine that promotes law-breaking. Not the doctrine of salvation by faith alone, but the doctrine of salvation by works. That promotes law-breaking. Not law-keeping, but law-breaking. Verse 18. For if I re- if I meaning as a Jew, rebuild what I have once destroyed. He's talking about when he was converted there and what his hope was in. If I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. What's going on? What's what's he saying here? He's saying, Paul is, if I, pretending like I'm Paul now, if I or anybody else was to rebuild the idea that obedience to God's law can play a part in my right standing before God, if I was to rebuild that doctrine on that doctrine and put my hope in it, I would actually be making myself to become a transgressor of that very law that I'm putting my hope in. How would he become a transgressor? He would become a transgressor because he would be bringing the law back to life, if you will, with respect to himself. And, uh, and then, by bringing the law back to life, he would have brought the law's demand for perfect obedience back to life for acceptance with God. You look to the law at all and it becomes the standard of acceptance with God. You look to it at all, and that's what he's saying, the minute I start looking to the law, I become a transgressor of the law automatically because of who I am. I'm a sinner. I'm like the Gentiles. And I'm like the Jews, by the way, too. He would, he would, he would, uh, he would also certainly have said, we're all in the same, in the same um, uh, situation. And because Paul was an imperfect, sinful man, even as a Christian... He himself, if he were to start looking to the law in any way, shape, or form as his hope, as his comfort, he would fail to meet that de- per- the demand for perfection that's uh, required by the law and would thereby become a transgressor of the law in the eyes of God. You see. So Paul's point, what is it? His point is, it's the doctrine of salvation, or excuse me, not, of, of, of justification um, it's the doctrine of justification partially by means of human effort, the Judaizers' doctrine, not the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone that causes people to become lawbreakers in God's sight and therefore transgressors of the law. It's their doctrine, Paul's saying, that is enslaving. 
It is their doctrine that promotes, uh, uh, causes God to see sin in, in, uh, in me or anybody else who looks to it. That's the point of verse 18, sub 17 and 18. So let's stop for a moment and talk about implications of what we've said so far. If you, anybody out there who's listening as well, if anybody, um, if you ever find yourself using God's gracious forgiveness of you and acceptance of you, if you begin using or find yourself using that truth, the fact that you've been justified as license for you to sin because, well, I'm forgiven and I'll continue to be forgiven because I'm a Christian so I can get away with this little one that I really would kind of like to participate in or, or uh, right now, thought, word, or deed. If you do that, use grace as a license to sin. First of all, you have warped and twisted you have a warped and twisted understanding of the implications of God's justification of sinners by faith alone. Implications that we will look at here in a moment. You have a twisted understanding of the implications of just the doctrine of justification. Secondly, if you use grace as license to sin against God, you have a warped and twisted understanding of the grace of God um, that makes your justification possible at all. You've, uh, you've misunderstood the grace of God, what it means and what it doesn't mean. And then thirdly, if you use grace, God's grace toward, shown toward you um, in justifying you as license to sin against God further, this warped, twisted understanding of yours will uh, is willful, it's deliberate, um, it's intentional. Because deep down inside, you know, you know that God didn't justify you so that you could sin freely without consequences of your sin. You know that. The sense of justice that you have in you knows that that's evil. And so if you are doing this in your life, or if you've done it recently and haven't confessed it and forsaken that terrible attitude, you need to humbly repent. Or if you do it in the future, may God forbid, but if you do, you need to humbly grieve over your uh, wicked attitude toward God's grace, toward the mercy that he's shown you, toward him, um, and you need to repent over your perverse uh, understanding uh, or delusion of what God has said in his word and ask him to forgive you um, and give you the grace to live according to the way he wants you to live. That is, to keep the law rather than disobey it. That brings me to my second point. Uh, the fact that Christians are justified by grace, by faith alone and Christ alone not only uh, can in no way serve as an incentive for you to break the law, but it can and will serve as an incentive, if you're a Christian, to obey God's law. The doctrine of justification will do that. Um, indeed, it's a very powerful incentive to uh, serve and obey God. 
In verse 19 of our text, Paul explains why uh, the doctrine of justification does not encourage uh, us to violate God's law. Let me read it. For through the law, I died to the law that I might live, notice I might live to God. Paul is saying, in effect, far from encouraging law-breaking, this doctrine encourages me to live to God. It encourages me, in other words, Paul's saying, to keep God, to, to obey God's will, to keep God's law. It does that. So he's stating that up front. In other words, it's doing just the opposite of what uh, uh, of what the, uh, the doctrine is accused by the Judaizers in Galatia of doing. How do I get that interpretation, by the way? You might go, how do, how do you get that interpretation from verse 19? Well, here's, here's how. Uh, why, why I think that's what ni- verse 19 is saying. When Paul says, through the law I died to the law, when he says that there in verse 19, he is referring to what happened to him at the point when he was justified when he was first justified, when he was first forgiven of his sin and declared righteous in the courtroom of heaven by the righteous judge. When he was justified, he was pardoned of all of his sins, as any Christian is, past, present, and future by God as judge. And Paul was pardoned on account of the fact that Jesus had fully satisfied the law's demands that Paul's sins be punished. And Christ had done that. He had satisfied the demands of the law with respect to Paul, and he did it in Paul's place. He took Paul's place, just like he did yours and mine, if you're a Christian or going to become a Christian. That's what he means in verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Uh, And yet Paul wasn't hung on a cross. Now, we don't know how he died, but, you know, when this was written, he hadn't been hung on a cross. He'd been crucified with, with Christ because... He was in Christ, or Christ was, yeah, he was in Christ, um, spiritually speaking, and he participated because Christ was acting as Paul's substitute on the cross, and yours, and mine. And as a result of the fact that Jesus satisfied the law's demand, the law's demand, that Paul's sins be punished, as a result of that, uh, and the fact that Jesus uh, did that uh, on Paul's behalf, the apostle Paul died to the law as a result of what Christ did. He, Paul, died to the law. That is, he was released from the bondage and the condemnation of the law of God. When Paul says, I died that I might live to God, there in verse 19, he means that I might live a God-glorifying life of conformity to God's will, as it is expressed in the law. The that, so follow me here, the that, in verse uh, 19, so, for through the law I died to the law, that I might live to God, that that that, 
probably doesn't just speak of God's purpose in justifying Paul uh, in order that I might live to God. That is probably, and I don't want to get too technical here, but that is probably uh, that in Greek that is not a purpose clause, but a result clause. It's introducing a result clause. In other words, the that, he's saying, uh, uh, for through the law I died to the law with the result that I might live to God. Live live a God-glorifying life. That's the result of my dying to the law through my union with Christ. And the result is I live for God. I, I keep the law. Not to be more pleasing to God, but because I love God. And I'm grateful to Jesus for what he did for me. And um, so then in verse 19, he's essentially saying, I was justified by God specifically that I might and will live that God-glorifying life to God as an offering, if you will, to God. Um, and this, by the way, folks, is obviously this is applying, Paul's applying this to himself, but this applies to you and me. It's exactly to same way to you and myself. And this is confirmed, by the way, that this is biblical doctrine. I'm not just pulling this out of novelty, out of verse 19. This is confirmed by what Paul says elsewhere in, in Titus and in Ephesians. So in Titus chapter 2, verses uh, 11 through 14, we read this, For the grace of God has appeared, here he's referring to the appearance of Christ in the incarnation in the world, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. He means there are all sorts of men, not every last man, woman, and child on the earth. You've got to be careful. Use context to determine what all means. Um, uh, uh, So, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny, notice this, the grace of God instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us that, and here again as a, per, as a result clause, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. And then Paul, similarly over in Ephesians, uh, in uh, well-known passage, chapter 2, verse 10, right at the end of that glorious uh, section in Romans, uh, Ephesians 2, says, where is this? I just, okay. He says, uh, for we are for we are his workmanship. This is right after he said, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not as a result of the works that no one should boast. And then he says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, union with Christ, for good works, which God prepared beforehand, God planned it ahead of time, that we should walk in those good works, in them. It couldn't be clearer, could it? God's grace is an incentive to live the way we were created to live, and that is living for God. In verse 20, back to our section here, in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. 
that, that verse, Paul explains how being justified by faith alone in Christ alone encourages, indeed compels, Paul and any Christian to live a God-glorifying or obedient and faithful life. For I have been crucified with Christ, through my union with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live, uh, which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. The doctrine of justification reminded Paul of his need to live by faith, is what he's saying. It reminded him of his need to live by faith in Christ and in Christ's word. For it is not just justification that is by faith. Yes, justification is by faith, and faith alone. But so too, folks, is sanctification. Now, we all have to obey God's commandments. We have, we are, there are imperatives all over the New Testament, uh, as well as the Old Testament. Do this, don't do this. So our wills have to participate in this. But it's solely the grace of God that causes us to obey, to, to choose the right rather than the wrong. It's only the grace of God that does that. And it's only as we trust God for that grace that that obedience, growing obedience, happens in our lives. The writer of Hebrews says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. Not just right up front when we're asking for God to forgive us, but throughout our whole life. It's impossible to please God without faith. And what faith does is it acts obediently. John fourteen fifteen, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Not perfectly, but really, you will. You'll want to, and you'll strive to. And you'll grieve when you don't. And so the doctrine of justification by faith alone points us to the need to live by faith, trusting God throughout our life for the grace that we need to, to uh, live for God and to uh, obey God and to trust God. And so this great doctrine uh, that was recaptured in the, uh, uh, rediscovered, if you will, in the Reformation drove home for Paul the magnitude of Jesus' love for him as exhibited in his willingness to die for him and experience hell in Paul's place. This made him, this made Paul and should make you and me, want to live in a way that demonstrates how grateful we are and how much we love him. Are you um, looking to God's forgiveness of you and his declaration of you as innocent and even righteous in his sight? Are you looking to that doctrine, that wonderful truth, which is grace uh, in its greatest expression, as motivation for you to put off what remains of sin in you and to put on more obedience in your life? If you're like me, you're not doing it enough. You see, we we need to keep our eye 
the writer of the Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus and all that he did for you is the point. As you fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith, uh, who did all that he did for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. As you look to him and remember that he, he, he endured an eternity's worth of hell that you and I deserved, he did that. Not because he had to. Because he wanted to. Because he loves you. How can we then turn around and go, well, I'm going to do this. Because it's fun. Whatever it is. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it's, dis, it's beyond despicable to think that way. But you know, you know as well as I do that we are tempted all to think that way. Perhaps a little unconsciously, sometimes even consciously. May God give all of us the grace to not think that way ever again. And if you're listening to me today and you have never understood that Jesus alone can save you from an eternity of torment at the hands of God, not the devil, he's not down there with a pitchfork. It's God down there in his wrath, um, punishing people who have not fled to Jesus uh, for their forgiveness, because we're all sinners and we all deserve hell, and you deserve hell, I deserve hell. And we will get hell for eternity unless we look to Jesus and trust in him alone to, to gain God's favor and his forgiveness and his acceptance. Because Jesus endured hell, God's wrath on the cross, and absorbed it all for those who trust him. But only for those who trust him. Are you trusting in Jesus alone? Do so before it's too late. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text and for the doctrines that uh, we have looked at. Particularly, we are so grateful, Lord, that you graciously, freely pardon sinners and declare uh, sinners whom you have chosen to be uh, righteous in your sight, not because they are, not because we are, but because Jesus was perfectly righteous, perfectly kept your, your law, his law. And he did that in our place so that that righteousness, that obedience could be credited to us and we could be seen by you as, like Jesus is, a law keeper, perfectly. Thank you so much that you are a God who is this way. Please forgive us, Lord, for those many times that we have defied you, that we have broken your law because it was convenient, because it was fun, because we were just rank idolaters at that moment. Please forgive us, and please help us not to do, engage in such behavior and thinking ever again, but to want to obey you because you are so worth obeying. We pray in Christ's name, amen. The Lord Jesus, uh, before he ascended into heaven, gave the church, um, the visible church, 
two uh, ordinances, holy ordinances we call them. We also sometimes call them sacraments. Um, those ordinances were both uh, instituted by Christ's uh, command. Um, one of the uh, records of the institution of the Lord's Supper is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 uh, and following, where we read this. Paul speaking here. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself... And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body correctly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep, meaning have died. The Lord's Supper, like baptism, um, uh, is Christ's ordinance. He is the host of this table. Uh, not me. Um, and the Lord's Supper is to be observed in remembrance of Christ, as we just read. And it is a, the Bible teaches that the, the sacrament uh, is a sign, and it's a seal of the covenant of grace that God made with Christ uh, as the second Adam, and in Christ with the elect as his seed. Um, that covenant, that gracious covenant that was first promulgated in the garden just after the fall in Genesis 3.15 uh, and was uh, uh, more and more um, detail was uh, given of that, the nature of that covenant down through the centuries, through Abraham, through, oh, through Noah, through Abraham, through Moses, through David, and finally in the new covenant. Um, that covenant, that gracious covenant, uh, this sacrament signs and seals. What do I mean by that? It's a sign in that it symbolizes um, the what brought the covenant into effect and brought the grace to us, and that is the broken body and shed blood of Christ, which is the pinnacle of Christ's redemptive work. Uh, so it is a symbol, but it is more than a symbol. Uh, scripture makes it clear. We are convinced, anyway, that Scripture makes it clear. It is also a seal of the covenant of grace. What does that mean? God, in this sacrament, as we partake of it, Christ in particular, as we partake of this uh, sacrament, God is uh, God the Son, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, are all saying to us, in effect, they are con- he is confirming, uh, guaranteeing afresh, uh, his intention to keep all his promises that he has made to us in the gospel. And because it is a sign... And because it is a seal, and also again because there is biblical warrant for this, it is a means of grace. A means of sanctifying, not saving, grace. Um, although the Lord could save somebody by watching this, of course, but it is not, uh, it is not by the partaking of it, uh, it is not, um, uh, going to bring salvation. We don't believe, uh, that it's, the, the ordinance saves anyone. Um, but it is something that the Holy Spirit uses amongst God's 
genuine people to strengthen them, to instruct them, to encourage them, to uh, uh, comfort them, um, and the like. And that's found in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians actually chapter 10, uh, verse 16, where he refers to uh, the uh, the cup as a cup of blessing, and by implication, the bread is also. And what he means is blessing comes uh, to those who rightly partake of the elements uh, through the Holy Spirit's work in this uh, in this ordinance. Uh, this meal is the sacrament is not for everyone. It is only for believers who know themselves to be Christians. Uh, you must be a Christian. Uh, and you need to be a baptized and communing member in good standing of uh, some evangelical church. Uh, we say this because it's only those who are, uh, there's ordinarily no, no salvation outside of the church. Uh, uh, some expression, visible expression of the church. We learn that in Acts chapter 2, verse uh, 42. Uh, and so that's our way of knowing. We, we as elders are responsible for uh, trying to uh, uh, guard the table and who approaches it, and that's our way of knowing whether or not, uh, or at least uh, finding having some assurance that you're actually a Christian if you belong to a organized body that believes the gospel, as I articulated it here in this uh, in this sermon. Uh, so you need to ba- be a baptized and communing member uh, in good standing. You must not come if you're not a Christian, or if you doubt that you're a Christian, or aren't sure you're a Christian. Um, um, and you must not also come if you claim to be a Christian, but you're cherishing some sin in your heart. If you know you're doing something and you haven't repented of it, and you and you are just not feeling sorry for something you're doing, uh, some attitude you're harboring, some uh, whether it's hatred for somebody or or uh, some uh, you're, somebody you're playing games with, you're deceiving them, or uh, thoughts that you know are displeasing to the Lord, but you don't care, you you may well not be a Christian at all. Uh, now, you may be. You may just be a real foolish Christian at this point. But you don't have the right to think you're a Christian if you're cherishing sin in your heart. <clears throat> and you certainly don't need to be partaking of this table lest that judgment that I read about comes from the Lord upon you uh, for your cavalier <clears throat> uh, uh, and blasphemous uh, uh, dealings with God. But if you are struggling with sin, if you are... If you have sinful uh, uh, things that you're struggling with, uh, and you haven't had a good week, perhaps, in, in your struggle with that uh, particular sin or those sins, but you hate the fact that you commit those sins, and you want to be rid of those sins, and you're trying to seek God for the grace to resist the temptation to engage in those thoughts, words, or deeds, or, or to... Uh, if, uh, start doing things that you're not doing, then <clears throat> this this meal is absolutely for you. Again, it's a means of sanctifying grace, we believe. Uh, the Holy Spirit uses this to grow us in our obedience, like I was saying in the sermon, to, that we might better honor God uh, through obedience to his will as set forth in his word. So if you're wrestling with sin, by all means come. Uh, and Receive the nourishment that you need uh, to help you in your battle. Let's pray now to the Lord. Lord, we thank you for this uh, means of grace, Holy Spirit, uh, Jesus, rather, whom you that you have. uh, 
provided us with. We thank you that you are the host of this table, and we thank you that by our participation, right participation, that is by faith in you and looking to you, that uh, we will be blessed by you because you have promised as much in your word. We ask that you would set aside these elements from their common everyday use under the holy purposes for which we are about to use them. And would you please help us to feed upon you, Lord Jesus, uh, by faith in our hearts. And we do again thank you for this uh, blessing that we are about to receive. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. As I'm ministering in his name, uh, I'm breaking this bread, and he gave it to his disciples as I am about to give it to you. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Please wait until we are all served, and then we will uh, partake of the bread together and likewise with the wine afterwards. The body of Christ was broken for you. Take and eat. In the same manner, he also took the cup, and having given thanks, as we've already done in his name, he gave it to his disciples, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. Again, please wait until we're all served.
blood of Christ was shed for you. Drink from it, all of you. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we do rejoice in your goodness to us. You are so very kind and um, warm and tender in your dealings with us. And we thank you that uh, this is an expression of that kindness and that compassion. Uh, We thank you that you have uh, allowed us to be here today and to partake uh, of your body and blood by faith. Uh, We thank you that uh, you will go forth with us now uh, before us into this week, and we ask for that, that you would uh, be with us and would strengthen us uh, in our battle to live to God, as Paul spoke of in Galatians. Uh, Please warn us when we are in danger, Please motivate us to seek your face, and please use us for your glory. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.